When people talk about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, they're almost 100% talking about radical Reformation. These Protestant reformers wanted to do away with the old Catholic Church. They wanted to completely replace it. They felt it was dead, it needed to go, and they needed to replace it. They didn't necessarily want to replace all the doctrine, but they wanted to replace the structure that was headquartered in Rome, that pope and that big engine that he had, which was taking advantage of the country. One of those guys who was in the Catholic Church, who was watching the situation and feeling more and more pressure and resentment of what was happening was named Martin Luther. Luther is a German, or was a German. He was born in Germany, and he was very educated in the institutions of Germany at the time, and was a bright guy, really smart guy. He knew some things, lots of things that were wrong. He'd been sort of taking notes on what was wrong with the Catholic Church, and and building a case, though I don't think he anticipated how far and what it was really going to do. But he eventually caught on. But what Martin Luther did was get really ticked off. I mean, he got really upset and resentful of this practice that came out of Rome, Italy, of indulgences, the sell of indulgences. At the time... The uh, Pope in Rome was building the Basilica, the St. Peter's Basilica, a very ornate thing, a very beautiful place, but it's extremely expensive. If you go to Rome, you need to go see the St. Peter's Basilica. He needed all the money he could get. They had lots, but he needed more and wanted more. Some of the states, like France and England, were beginning to buck a little, but at the time, Germany didn't have a strong leader. So the Pope was really leaning on the Germans and those German lords to come up with the money to take care of his projects going on down in, in Rome. Probably Pope Leo X is one of the most worldly, arvacious, and extravagant, extravagant of all of the popes. I mean, he was really, a, we'd call him in my part of the world, a wingdinger, but he was really evil guy. Uh, as I said, some people, I mean, he said, you guys got to send money. Spain ignored him. England and France ignored the bull that he sent out. But the ruler of England, I mean, of Germany was Maximilian, and he yielded to the Pope, started sending the money in. What they started to do, in addition to the bull, was to raise more money through these indulgences. That is, they had invented the idea of purgatory, and it was to their advantage to say that very few people ever would go from this planet directly to heaven. You'd have to go by way of purgatory. There's a good reason why they would reason like that, because they could get people in purgatory. The kids and the grandkids and friends would want to get them out of purgatory. And they could say to them, hey, you sign this little paper here. It's an indulgence. And we can shorten your mother's time in purgatory from maybe 1,000 to 500 years or 400 years. I mean, so, so they started raising money, and purgatory was a great vehicle for doing that. You know, we, we have this place, that's where your folks are, and we'll get them out, but you've got to pay the church to do it. So it's just another money-raising scheme on top of the already many that they had. Luther bristled. 
He just knew that because they were doing it right under his nose, right where he was living at the time. It's where it was really uh, having its uh, biggest uh, success and duping people. So uh, on October the 31st, in 15 and 17, Luther, who is now a monk in, in a monastery, who's had a remarkable experience in a thunderstorm, who says, get me out of this, I'll do what you want. He writes down his 95 Thesis. You know much about this history. You've got to know that he wrote these beliefs he had, these complaints he had down on a long sheet of paper, and he nailed them on the door of the Catholic Church in his town at the time. Well, the, another thing had happened, because God's still ahead of us all the time. Along through these years, this invention called the printing press has come on the scene. Before the printing press, people had to copy things, handwritten copies. When the printing press came along, they set type, and it's a press with set type that they could pop down like this and make an impression on a sheet of paper, usually papyrus or some kind of paper of that sort, and they could do a hundred of them in a little while. That revolutionized information in Europe. I mean, it caught on, the press caught on, and as a result of that, information could be sent from one place to another place very rapidly, much, much more quickly than it ever had before. Martin Luther's 95 Theses got spread across Europe. Most of them have in one place or another, in many places really, gotten sick of the Pope and sick of what's going on, sick of the beating they're taking and all the raping they're taking of their money and, and their wives being abused and all this stuff. They're tired of it. So they said, hey, enough's enough. And so they got Luther's thesis and they said, we're stopping. Luther, he had been in this monastery and he was doing a commentary on the book of Romans. And as he's writing this commentary, that's what sometimes monks did, and he's a very, as I said, educated monk. He gets down to Romans, the first chapter, which says the just shall live by faith. And he realized that's the way it is. He, I think Martin Luther genuinely believed that salvation then has to come through faith in Christ. That's so contradictory to Catholic thinking. They've been thinking, no, you join the church, you pay the money in, we get you to heaven. You go on a crusade, we'll get you to heaven. No, here's Luther coming along saying, the Bible says, the scriptures, and he's one of the leaders. They can't say, well, that's what the church says, says. He's one of the leaders of the church, and he's saying this is the way it is. Justification is by faith. Needless to say, he gets called into question by the Catholics as soon as they figure it out. When these theses go out, he's under the gun. They're looking for him. The Catholics would no doubt have eradicated him. They would have killed him. But he had a strong lord, the good uh, kingdom there in the German area. And this guy was strong enough and had a military force big enough that he made himself the protector of Martin Luther. He made it his business to not, not let the Pope kill him. Because that's what they were trying to do. He hid him in a place called Wartburg uh, 
cabbage or, or place, a place called Wartburg, for a year. Meanwhile, Luther's writing more things and doing more things, making more plans. As he's doing this, when the our kind of people, the Anabaptists, who were very strong and thick in that area, they heard, they're, they're poor people, you know, when they heard that Luther has now embraced salvation by grace through faith, they were all excited and said, well, praise the Lord, we have a champion on our side here. But when the Pope got after Luther, he realized, I can't, I can't succeed with the peasants. They don't have any guns or they don't have any military might. And I, you know, sword. They're not trained. They, I can't do it. If we're going to rebel, if I'm going to stand against the Pope and we're going to succeed in this Reformation, I'm going to have to have the rich men, the guys that own the land and have the money and have the military power. So he kind of threw the peasants under the bus. He said, no, we've got to stand with the... And he started standing with the elite, you know, these rich. Well, he did. He got his protection and he went on to form his own brand of church. If we're going to do away with Roman Catholicism. What are we going to have in Germany? We're going to have a church named after Luther, named after him. So he established the Lutheran church, set up the framework of the Lutheran church. It's a reformed church. You hear it today about, are you a reformed Baptist? That means generally you're talking about, are you a Calvinist? Most of these reformed churches, they're reformed because they're reformed reformation churches out of the Catholic Church. But they have some doctrine. Their doctrine can be anything. And Luther's doctrine was, was Lutheran doctrine. Uh, not, and it was very Calvinistic because he had a guy named Theodore Beza in his court that was just a Calvinist as John Calvin. And so they embraced strong Calvinism. Uh, Brother Les Cook recently brought me a copy of a Bible he has. He owns from his family. It's a German Bible, but bless God, it's a Lutheran Bible, a Luther Bible. And I enjoyed seeing it and looking through it. The Luther's Bible, which is a breakthrough because that gave the German people at least some sense of the Scripture in their own language. It's not in English yet, but it was in German. And the Luther's Bible, though, is very laced with Calvinism throughout. So Luther has now established a new church. The Lutheran Church, they're still around. They still, uh, Lutheran, Luther still embraced baptizing babies and a whole lot of things that I don't have time to discuss here, but I have mentioned some of his betrayal of the Anabaptists. It's in this book. I want to talk about another guy besides Luther who got the courage to also reform. And his name was Huldrych Zwingli. He was headquartered in, in Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, this guy was pretty straight throughout at first. He embraced a lot of the positions of the, of the primitive Baptists or the, the, the archive people who were in his area. Um, and he consequently, he found himself at odds with the Catholics in the area because it was a Catholic area. So they contested him and they decided, and with the support of the sound, sound, uh, town council in Zurich, that they would have a public debate using the Bible as their basis to see who won and whoever won. If, if, if a Catholic priest won in the debate, they would be Catholic, stay Catholic. If, if the Zwingli won, they'd be reformed. After the debate, the town officials declared Zwingli the, the winner. Consequently, 
Now you have another church. Uh, this reformed church of Hildrick Zwingli. In this whole mix, because these are things that are going on pretty close to the same point in time, is this man named John Calvin. Now remember, Luther is over in Germany. Zwingli is over in Switzerland. John Calvin is at Geneva, Switzerland, pretty close to where Zwingli was. He was an attorney. He was headquartered in Geneva. At 26, he had published a work that's still around today and still has enormous influence today. In fact, this work is very common in seminaries, Baptist seminaries even. It's called Institutes of the Christian Religion. And this particular document of John Calvin is what's called Calvinism, and it has had probably more influence uh, for false doctrine than any you could ever see. Um, Calvin and Zwingli were advocates of a state church. They didn't like the Roman church ruling, but they wanted their state to be. The German, the Lutheran church uh, was and is a state-run church. So is the uh, church of Zwingli, and so is the church of John Calvin particularly the Presbyterian church. That's the one that Calvin is going here. They kind of get together on the Presbyterian church. Very reformed, very Calvinistic church. And the idea of Calvinism, some of you know, it's on the screen right there in front of you, is the tulip is called because of the first letters in the little acrostic here. Total depravity, T standing for the total depravity of man, total depravity. The U standing for unconditional election. The L standing for limited atonement. I stand for irresistible grace, and the P standing for the perseverance of the saints. That is, you continue. It's just all you can see as a works aspect that you've got to persevere. So this is Calvinism, and it's still real healthy and thriving. There was another reformer along the scene. His name was Henry VIII. I mentioned him in one of these earlier talks. Uh, he was a king of England, Henry VIII, the king of England. Henry VIII was generally regarded in those earlier days as a defender of Catholic religion. He died, it seems, being a defender of Catholic religion. He believed those doctrines, those false doctrines that we've been talking about. He did not embrace what true Christians embraced. He didn't leave the Church of England, I, I mean, excuse me, the Church of Rome, because he didn't like their doctrine. He left it because he couldn't get a divorce from Anne Boleyn, his wife. Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. So he said, well, you can just take it and stuff it, buddy. I'll get my own. I'll start my own church. And that's what he did. He reformed or revolted in the Reformation and started the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church is the church of Episcopal, the Episcopalian Church in the United States. That's the same name over here, basically the same church over here. So Henry VIII, he reformed, and in place of the Pope, he put up the Archbishop of Canterbury as the chief ruler of the church with, of course, like all of them, Henry VIII or the King of England to be the ultimate authority, but the Archbishop would be his, his go-to guy. So you can see we have this Reformation, this Protestant Reformation, and what they're doing is just setting up another organization, church-state organization, that they kind of have cleaned up, and, but it's under a different power. It's under different control. So you have then the Presbyterians, and you have the Lutherans, and you have these others as they, as they grow. 
I want to talk a minute about getting Bibles. Uh, so much more could be said anywhere I could stop here. But the Catholic Church was very adamantly against allowing the Scriptures to be in the hands of the common man. They thought the common man is not capable of understanding the Scriptures. The church officials, the bishopric, the hierarchy, the priesthood are the ones who have to handle the Scriptures. So they said the Scriptures do not need to be in the common man's hand. You remember in 323, Constantine had said, make copies of the Scriptures. So you get all these handwritten copies. The reason there's so many uh, fragments and pieces of Scripture that they're finding all over Europe, particularly in that area around Italy. So Constantine said, but it wasn't too long, within a couple of hundred, less than a couple hundred years, that these followers of Constantine and these, these very uh, powerful preachers who are very liberal and who are very power-centered, they began to say, hey, these scriptures are confusing the people. After all, it's not what scriptures say, it's what the church says. So let's don't give them the scriptures, let's just tell them what the church says. You can see why it's their advantage to hide the scriptures. Because if they're saying, making all these changes, and people are looking into their scriptures and finding that what they're doing is direct contradiction to the Bible, there's going to be war in the court. Sure enough, they said, let's just do away with them. So they had some meetings, and, and finally this church, this group of people, decided that it would become against the rule of the Catholics, illegal for any individual to have a Bible. So Bibles faded away. That was about 500 A.D. It was just about, a, not even a thousand years, close to a thousand years later, that the first Bible, Luther's Bible, made it out into German. And then there's John Wycliffe comes along, and he's trying to get a Bible into English. And he gets part of it into English, the New Testament part. And then, but there's a big struggle because when the idea of Bibles getting into the hands of the common man comes around, the Catholic priesthood and leadership, they hate it. They fight it. They really get riled up and try to trace down anybody who's trying to get a, translate a Bible. We're not going to tolerate We're not going to let that happen. So they opposed it every way they could. Listen, the trail of history of you having an English Bible in your hand is a sad trail, but it's a glorious trail because we got it. Thank God we have an English Bible today. Amen. Well, this is going on, this struggle for the Bible. There is a Catholic who believes member in a in a um, in-house type Reformation, a counter-Reformation, who his name is Desiderius Erasmus. He is a thoroughbred Greek scholar and has information scholarship in other areas. Desiderius Erasmus uh, realizes we need a standard Greek text, standardized Greek text. That is going to take all of these fragments and all these uh, copies of the scriptures that we have, full or part, especially the New Testament, and we're going to convert those. I'm going to make a standard text so that this is the one, a canon, a new type of canon. And it's because there's a bunch of different scriptures, and some of them, you know, there's been wormholes. They eat through a, a page in the 
scroll and now you can't tell that word. Maybe it leaves out a the or, you know, there's been copier mistakes. And so Erasmus realizes we need a standard Greek text of the New Testament. So he makes it his business to produce one. It is called Textus Receptus. It is still regarded as a good Greek text. The modern scholars will say, well, he had a limited library. He didn't know all that was going on. He had the Vatican Library. He had it. He knew about Westcott and Hort, or he didn't know about what he knew about uh, uh, many of these others uh, who had supposedly found better manuscripts. He knew about that stuff. There's no indication at all, no reason at all to think he was not fully aware of these. Others. But he came up with a standardized Greek text, which I will tell you today is the base text, not the total text, of the King James Bible. I go through a little in here about the English Bibles, about the Wycliffe Bible, and about the Tyndall Bible, and about the Cloverdale Bible. And there's some, you know, little, little snippets on, on these different Bibles that were going on. But the Greek text of Desiderius Erasmus was there, and it was the best source that these King James translators had. And so the English were not so hot on it first, getting the Bible into the English language. But you know, the heart of the king is in the hand of God. And God moved on the heart of King James, who was the king of Scotland, who became then, through circumstances, a king of England as well. And he went down to London area and lived in that area and some scholars, they had many learned men. I mean, guys, when I say learned men, I'm talking about scholars in their colleges in their area that could speak some of them 15 languages. They were at home in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and uh, Syriac and all these languages, many of them, they were there. Real scholars, not just would-be scholars. And they petitioned the king, King James I, to put a new Bible, a standardized Bible, another canon Bible, into the English language. That was about 16 and 3. He got groups together. He gave some this part of the Old Testament, some others this part of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, different places. He got all these scholars together, picked the best minds, the most learned men, who, by the way, almost to a man, believed in divine inspiration. They believed God gave the scriptures. Since then, not many people have believed that. Most of these translators today think it's just like a Sears and Roebuck catalog. God had nothing to do with it. These translators believe God. That's one of the reasons I'm not real hepped up on the New International Version or some of these other versions. They had guys who didn't even believe it's the Word of God doing that translation. But nevertheless, King James guys did. So they... These guys went to work. Finally, after reading, writing, translating, and then passing their work to each other and proofing and proofing and proofing, layer upon layer upon layer, taking it to the king himself, they came up with a standardized Bible called the King James Bible. I'm happy to tell you that I have a copy of it right here. This is a King James translation of the Bible. I know it's a translation. But I know also it's a good translation. It's, in my opinion, still ranks as one of, if not the very best translation that is available anywhere in the English language today. So they got the Bible into the English language. 
what a record. I mean, what a wonderful experience that we could read it. And there's information, like I said, about how this came to be. So now I, I want to tell you the King James Bible and with the English version of it, since England has this empire, including the United States, you know, and all these colonies where the English guys went, the King James Bible went. And then America comes along and starts to flex some muscle and becomes a nation. And for a long time where we sent soldiers, they always had a copy of the King James Bible in their pack. I mean, the Bible just spread. The King James Bible has been one of the greatest tools used of God in the history of humanity to bring people to the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful. I mentioned that Bible, what an impact it had. Now, while this is happening, I need to talk to you about the Anabaptist. The Anabaptists, remember, Anna means re, and Baptist means baptizers. Or baptizing new. The Anabaptists, these baptize these people who are already supposed to be saved but haven't a good baptism. So, so the Anabaptists are the historical name given to the movement that we call first century Christianity or primitive Baptist. Um, I've already spent some time showing you that this, our type people have been around from the start. Over in the east, the Bogomils, the Paulicians, in the center, the Albigenses and the Waldenses, over in the west, the Welch Baptists. They've been here a long time. They're not Johnny-come-lateness at all. Um, I'll read some stuff that you need to see. It's in your notes under Anabaptist. The beginning of the Anabaptist movement are fully rooted in the earlier centuries. These are some of those writers of the long time. Anabaptists not view themselves as a new sect. Records testify that people believing and practicing exactly what they believed in practice had been around since the time of the New Testament. Yep. You don't get much of that in seminary, I can tell you. But that is the fact. These are facts. In, in fact, quote, far more than 12 centuries baptism, for more than 12 centuries, baptism in the way taught and described in the New Testament has been made an offense against the law punishable by death. This is what the Romans, they're even admitting that it has been. Next, the mandate of Spear, April 1529, declares that the Anabaptists were hundreds of years old. Cardinal Hosius, you may have heard of him, he was a member of the Council of Trent in 1560. And in a statement, he's often quoted as saying, and I'm quoting him, if the truth of religion were to be judged by the readiness and boldness of which a man of any sect should show in suffering, then the opinion and persuasion of no sect can be truer and surer than that of the Anabaptists, since there have been none of those 1,200 years past that have been more generally punished or that have been more cheerfully and steadfastly undergoing and even offended, offered themselves to the most cruel sorts of punishment than these people. Wow. 1,200 years. Do you know when that was? That's 1529. He's going back to 500 talking about the Anabaptists. And we were, even though they were that before, they were called Anabaptists in some other circles in Cathares. Uh, we descended through the, the Waldenses. The Anabaptists came through the Waldenses. They were rebaptizers too. That's a general name given to the Waldenses. I've listed some of these early heroes, these Anabaptist heroes. For example, George uh, Jacob Blue Rock is one of them. He became 
known as Blue Rock because he wore a blue coat. This man was open and bold about winning people to Jesus Christ. He was not afraid to stand up and talk to somebody about the Lord. He won hundreds and hundreds of people to the Lord. He was martyred because of it. He became pastor of an orphan church in the Adige Valley of Austria. The Anabaptist pastor was, this man was burned at the stake on June the 2nd in 15 and 29. Balthazar Hubmeyer was another one regarded by many as the most important Anabaptist of all, born a peasant, yet he got into the church, earned a doctorate degree in theology as a Catholic, and then was converted by the Baptist, be an Anabaptist. He wrote a tract and a book about the Anabaptist doctrines. I've been trying to get my hand on that for a while, but I haven't been able yet. He made and baptized over 6,000 converts in Austria. You just ask yourself, how many have I won? This guy was a soul winner, real soul winner. He was also captured and burned at the stake. This is a price that our forefathers are paying in the, in the 16th century. Johannes Dink, he's identified with the Lutherans early in his life, but he soon saw the hypocrisy of Lutheranism and advocated uh, justified, uh, justification by faith and, and, and while they were living their impure lives. And so... Uh, his insistence on purity brought him scorn and exile. And as a Lutheran, Johannes Dink met Baltimore, or, or Balthazar Hubmeyer, who led him to the Lord and baptized him as an Anabaptist. Uh, Johannes Dink is known as one of the best Anabaptist theologians of all. He really put down what they stood for. That's one of the where we know it. There's another guy named named. Uh, uh, Michael Sattler, uh, the striking testimony of Michael Sattler has become a, had an awesome impact. It did at the time. He was a Benedictine monk. He was converted to Anabaptist and made a successful ministry in southern Germany. The Catholics got him, apprehended him, and were burning him at the stake. He knew that was coming. He told some of his followers as they were talking before he was put at the stake, he said, I'm when the fire starts, if you see me raise my hand and do this, you know that the grace of God is sufficient. He's caught up in the flames and they saw his hand go up. I mean, a guy who stood there gave it, Mino Simon. Some of these people today in our country, even they're called Mennonites, they come from this guy, but he was truly a, a Baptist at the start, and some of his followers got away from what he, he was in the Netherlands. Baptist. What about Baptist? Well, I'll tell you what happened over time. These Baptists, these Anabaptists just, they said, we're really not Anabaptists. We're just Baptists. <laughs> Don't need to call us Anna. We're, everybody we baptize is somebody not being re-baptized. We're just baptizing them. So they dropped the idea. That finally, the idea of Anna went away, and they just called them Baptists, which their practice is. The followers of the Wallards, and Wycliffe united in a short time in England, and they were called the Bible men. The Lollard, Lollard movement in Indian was, in, in England later merged with the Anabaptists, and over time they became simply known as Baptists. They just became Baptists. That's just the name that was given to them. Well before the Protestant Reformation, Baptist churches in, existed in many places. There's a graphic in front of you. Look at all these places that are underlined in red. 
where there were Baptist churches. They called them conventals, but they were churches, assemblies that were there. And all these different towns, even in the face of severe persecutions, the Baptists continued to multiply. Lots of them just grew. Foreigners continued to stream into the country. As many as 4,000 resided near Norwich, many of which were Baptists. Moreover, churches were formed. Of those still existing, it is alleged that Farringdon was founded in 1576, Kroll and Epworth both in 1597, Dartmouth, Oxford, Wedmore, Bridgewater, all in 1600. There were conventals or churches in almost every county in the whole of England by this period of time. So they're here. These are our forefathers. I have to admit that address the John Smith controversy at least just a little. John Smith, not S-M-I-T-H, they spelled his with a Y-S-M-Y-T-H. Toward the end of the 16th century, another independent group emerged in England. This is about the end of the 16th century. That would be like 1590 and 1595 and long in that period of time. These were called the separatists. If you know any English history, you've heard of the separatists. They believed in congregational government. But the separatists were not Baptist. They baptized infants, one of whom parents or whose guardian was a believer. If you were a believer, we baptize your baby and make him a, a, a Christian. In this case, as was so often the case, the number one dividing issue was baptism. In 16 and 6, 16 and 6, John Smith formed a separatist church in Gainsborough, England. Gainsborough, England. There are major conflicts in the story of the pastorate at Gainsborough. Supposedly on the night of March 24, 1606, John Smith was baptized in the Don River, which flows right through that area. Two years later, in 1608, John Smith moved his whole church of eight members to the Netherlands, over into the Holland area, Amsterdam. Smith and his followers proceeded to baptize themselves. It's called Say Baptism, S-E-B-A-T-I-S-M, and formed a new church. They realized that what they had when Smith had started this thing in England was not legitimate. So he said, we're going to straighten it up. How are you going to straighten it up? We'll just baptize each other. Well, who's your authority for that? I mean, so they're not, they're just barking up the wrong tree. Smith and his followers then proceeded to baptize himself. Smith reportedly baptized his own self and didn't allow somebody else to do it, which is an act, as I said, called sea baptism, and formed this new church. But it wasn't long till in his new church, a split developed, and he, along with 24 others that had grown a little bit, were excluded by the rest of the people. He was excluded from the church which he had formed as Smith and those who sided with him were repudiated, him repudiated their baptisms and their organization of a church as invalid. He himself repudiated his baptism and his church saying, we couldn't do it that way. It's not a right way to do it. Smith and his followers then joined a Mennonite church of whose mode of baptism was sprinkling. Talking about John Smith, the supposed first Baptist that's taught in many of our seminaries today. He's the real, we're Protestants, and John Smith's the first of our, he's a protester. He's our forefather. John Smith is not our forefather. 
Shortly after 16 and 10, Smith died in a Mennonite, as a Mennonite in Holland, and the remnant of his church that had stayed with him went extinct. There is no valid reason for saying that John Smith was a Baptist. There is no proof that John Smith was ever a Baptist. And by the way, uh, Brother Nair knows about this. I mean, you got a, it's a very impressive chart. There's a lot of good on it. But there is some hint in this chart that maybe John Smith, we started with John Smith. We did not start with John Smith. Absolutely not. We were here. <laughs> we were here when Jesus was here. And our kind of church was. So don't imagine somebody comes along and tells you who says he's a scholar that somehow we started with John Smith. We didn't. Now we're going to talk about America. Well, I wish I had more. I would just say this. Roger Williams, you need to know that name. If you haven't learned that name, put it down in your memory bank and keep it. He was a Puritan in England who, like many Puritans, concluded that the Anglican Church could not be reformed. Not only the Roman Church need to be reformed, now they're Anglican, Anglican and now they're seeing corruption over there. Just So he, he, Roger Williams, by the way, he was a linguist. He spoke several languages. So Roger Williams on April the 7th, 1630, came with a group of Puritan, uh, Puritans to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, that area around Boston, they left Southampton, Hampton, England for America with the intent of, quote, creating a true church of England. He didn't come over here to establish a Baptist church. He came over to the church. He thought we'd come over there and start over with the Church of England and their doctrine, and we'd be okay. They had no plans of religious, uh, for religious liberty. Most of the new colonies, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Jamestown Colony, all of these colonies coming to Virginia and Connecticut and and Plymouth Rock and all these, they didn't come over here intending to start some new type church. Many of those came over here with the intent of starting a church like they had at home, just a cleaned up version of it. And Williams was in that bunch. But he was becoming more and more convicted as he read the scriptures that there must be an immediate and complete separation from the church in England, separation of church and state. He's getting a hold of that while he's over here with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He spoke and wrote Puritan injustices and exposed them. And he began to show differences between Puritan thought and the teachings of biblical Christianity. He said, hey, we, Puritans are not doing it right. They're not in line with this church that Jesus established and so on. Roger Williams had some funny ideas. Let me tell you how funny they were. He said to these Puritans, who came over here, that these Indians are people and they need to be saved. Amen. You say, well, what's wrong? The Puritans didn't do that. The Puritans thought they were savages. They didn't have a soul. They just treated them like hog, hog cows. And I'm talking about the Puritans. I'm not really excited when the schools want everybody to dress up like a Puritan. And all that. They don't know who the Puritans really were. But nevertheless, they did it. There were some good ones, by the way. Jonathan Edwards was a real good writer. But nevertheless, the, Roger Williams says there's something wrong with that. These people need the Lord. We need to preach Christ to these Indian people here. He wanted to get some land. So in a long series of events, Roger Williams, uh, they, for his preaching, the Massachusetts Bay Colony and their leader were going to transport Williams back to England. We're not going to let you stay over here with this kind of stuff. 
you're stirring us up. Before they could get, he was sick. Before he got the word, before they could get to him and arrest him. So he left in the middle of winter when it's icy up there in Massachusetts and Connecticut. He left there and went south because he had made friends with the Indians. They helped him in the snow because he got lost. They helped him get down to Rhode Island. Little beast. Got down to Rhode Island. He began to preach what he believed down there about salvation. The things really that we're preaching. He wasn't a Baptist. But he was preaching this thing, especially liberty of conscience. He said, you shouldn't be forced to go to Sunday school and church. You shouldn't have to pay a fine for it. The church shouldn't tell you what to believe and what to preach as a preacher. You should preach the word of God. He's talking Baptist doctrine here. You know that? Though he wasn't one. I'll tell you another one of these strange things he did. He needed some property down in Rhode Island. Roger Williams. Instead of doing what our forefathers often did, just take it, buddy. It's open here. It belongs to the king of England. We conquered this place, or at least we discovered it. It's our land. You know what he said, Roger Williams? I'm going to pay for this property. He actually met with a chief, an Indian chief that owned the property in that area. It was part of theirs and paid him in, in uh, uh, clamshells. It was very important to them. Then he played him, I forgot how many, 100 or 200 for Providence, Rhode Island. And Williams believed, Williams believed that the providence of God put him in the right place at the right time. I'm going to just get out of the book for a minute and just tell you the rest of it. Roger Williams, who paid for the land that's now called Providence, Rhode Island, named it Providence because he believed in the providence of God. He was a good man. He tried to establish a church there but he didn't have peace about it because he realized he didn't conform and wore his back. He didn't have the roots back to a New Testament church. So when he started the church, after a while, he kind of got away from it. And a guy came over named John Clark, who was a doctor in England, who was a staunch Baptist, came to Providence, Rhode Island, settled down over there. He was a Baptist preacher. And he established what Roger had already got started and organized it as a Baptist church with authority from a church in England. The first church in the United States of America was a Baptist church, or the first Baptist church, I'll say the first Baptist church was in Providence, Rhode Island. I had the blessed privilege of going up there with Margaret and Nancy Sims and Edna Catherine just last October and walking through that building and seeing that piece of property and seeing the enormous influence that Roger Williams and John Smith had, I mean, that, and uh, uh, John Clark had in establishing that church. Just a glorious time. I, got, I actually, I went up in their church. I walked in there. I'll tell you what a country boy I am. I walked in that church, and I walked right down to the pulpit, and I just stood up there thinking, this is a pretty good place to stand. It's, it's not what it was. It's gone away. I don't think it's a legitimate church at all now. But the reality was, that's where it started, right there. Roger Williams didn't start that first Baptist church. John Clark started it, but Roger laid the groundwork. In fact, Roger Williams went back to England. I, I mean, he stayed in, in the States while John Clark went back to England to meet with the King of England to get a charter that granted liberty of conscience and a statehood for the state or colonyhood for the Rhode Island. He, Williams was supporting him monetarily so that 
Clark could go back there and get the necessary documents, not only as a right church, but, as, but to start Rhode Island, which was when the 13 colonies got together after the Revolutionary War, 13 colonies got together to form a united nation here, the United States of America. They did not have a Bill of Rights. The people from Virginia weren't all excited about it. Certainly not the people from Boston or Connecticut or New York or any of these places. They weren't particularly concerned about liberties. But I'll tell you that Roger Clark was. And along with John, his pastor, John Clark, Roger Williams, lobbied for a Bill of Rights. They stood on it. They wouldn't budge on it. They were gaining, they talked to the people like Henry down here in Virginia, Patrick Henry. And they had an agreement. We will agree to succeed, or we will agree to form this nation. We will sign the Declaration of Independence only if you have an agreement to put in it later a Bill of Rights. They signed it. The United States formed here. They came back a little later, put the Bill of Rights in there. And one of the things it says, Congress shall make no law respecting and establishing of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. You hear that's the Bill of Rights. If it hadn't been, in my opinion, for Roger Williams and John Clark and the Baptist, we would not have freedom in this country today. They stood, and I thank God for people who have the backbone and courage to stand up when it's not popular. And I appreciate you who've, who endured, <laughs> stayed around, and have let me talk to you and share my heart. And we, I believe, have recorded this. Thank God for Bob and, and uh, Nathan back there and for Brother Darren, our pastor, who's who's been a part of this mix and try to get this, not because it's me, but because this needs to be heard. This message needs to be heard. And so it will be, I suppose, in the not too distant future on YouTube and where people will be able to get it. And when that happens, we'll get the information to you and to whoever you might. They know then they can go where to find this and then can watch it. Uh, I'm not trying in any sense to toot anybody's horn, but I will say this, to, to my knowledge, as far as I know, there's nobody today that's teaching this historical look at who we really are. I remember that J.D. Johnston used to do it, and some preachers that I knew, three or four, would use the trail of blood mainly, and they would go through similar material, not as in-depth. But they're gone. They're in heaven. And I can't be too far away from heaven at 82, so I don't know who else is going to step up. It may be his name may be Darren Simpson. I don't know who it's going to be who's going to take this mantle and say, I'll stand here. I'll make sure this message gets out there. It may be to a little group. doesn't matter. But the thing is, this message needs to live because it's a true message. And it don't need to be swept under the carpet and let us, everybody, and our people think that we're some kind of Protestant bunch because we're not. So you know that many of these things and more are recorded in this little book that I have here and Margaret is the keeper of that. And I do want to say while I'm here how much I appreciate 
the, the backing of Northwest Baptist Church. I'm a church man. It's not just in theory. I believe you need to do your work through church. You not do uh, freelance stuff. You need the authority of God's church behind whatever you do. To him be glory in the church. Amen. So I have been that all of my days and tend to die that way. And thank God for Northwest Baptist Church who helps me and stands behind me in the writing of books like this. And some of you may not be aware, but uh, this is my latest little book. It's called What's So Wrong With Doing Right? And it's a little different approach, but it's, it deals with the society in which we find ourselves and the need for people to wake up and see where true medicine that can help America and help people is. And it's in the Word of God. So it's a Christian apologetic, something like Justin Martyr did in his Astristides uh, in some of those writings that he did. So I'll just say to all of you, I appreciate your support. And I will tell you whether it's Brother Darren or whether it's me or Brother Jerry Locke or whether it's Brother Hudson Smelly, when, when our stripe of people do things, write books like this that address real issues and state our doctrinal positions and clarify things and do that, uh, I encourage you to support them, not from just a monetary standpoint. That's not the issue. This stuff needs to be read. I didn't write a book so it would be sitting on somebody's library. and not. It, I wrote a book because I know people need to read it. There's some of these kids that grew up in churches and preachers' homes that have grown up, and they got off in the university systems, and they got away from God, and they don't know for sure if there is a God, and certainly don't know if the Bible is true, and they don't believe they need a church. I don't know how to get this into their faces and get them to read it, but I think we ought to do everything we can. And one thing you can do is go to a place like Amazon, where my works are, go up there and write a recommendation. Say, I read this, and I've, I forwarded. You ought to get it. Because they look at those stars up there, you know, four, five, one, or however many there are. And it's always good when you've got a book and there's 20 people instead of just one that's reviewing that book and going up there and saying, you need to get it. I don't say that to promote me. I just say we need to stand behind what we believe and we need to do everything we need to get the word out. And that's enough for me, Brother Darren. So close, close us.